Gratitude is tough stuff. Pastor Delmore Chilton says it too often. Many of us are like the story of a man he heard about with a broken arm. This man was at the post office, and he saw this guy with his arm in a sling. And this guy listened as the guy with his arm in a sling asked the post office employee to help him out. The postman obliged. He wrote the man's note on the card. He filled in the address. He put the stamp on, and he handed it back to the guy with the broken arm. The postman did, and he said, is there anything else I can do for you? The man with the broken arm looked the card over a minute and said to the postman, well, you could write a line apologizing for the bad handwriting. <laughs> Sometimes we're like that. Sometimes it's more like we're a parent telling our children, remember to say please and thank you. Did you remember to say thank you? You didn't say thank you. He meant to say thank you. He, he doesn't, he meant to say thank you. Not that any of us have ever been there before. But as a general rule of thumb, when the Bible sounds like a simple moralism that you remember hearing once from a condescending adult somewhere in your past, it probably means you're reading the condescending adult into the Bible and seeing less about what's really going on here. This passage is about gratitude, but it's more deeply about the connection between gratitude and faith. Earlier in chapter 17, you heard last week Jesus imploring his followers to have just a little bit of faith, like a, like a mustard seed, knowing that just a little bit can go a long way. The character of that faith is given flesh today by ten whose flesh called them to be called lepers. That's a word they use for a whole slew of skin diseases. But the most important to know is that that skin problem would have made them a problem for society. It would have automatically put them into the crowd of outsiders, the unclean. Now, if you're unclean, you can't go into the temple to worship God. You can't live close to populated areas. You're forced to either wear bells so that people knew you were coming or to shout ahead of you, unclean, unclean. So when God, in the person of Jesus, comes out to no man's land in, here in between Galilee and Samaria, you know a good plot is brewing. Remember the Rudolph Christmas Carol and the island of misfits? Well, this is the land of misfits who have been tossed to the side simply because they don't look right. Here the Son of God and the most despised meet. Or as Psalm 85 suggests, love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss. They clamor for mercy, and Jesus sends them off. Now notice that they're not cured in front of Jesus, but on their way to the priests. And only one, the Samaritan, comes back and says, thank you. So is that an act of gratitude? Yeah. And is gratitude a good thing? Oh yeah. Gratitude is a very good thing. 
Over the past two decades, much of the research on happiness can be boiled down to one prescription. Give thanks. There's been hundreds of studies showing that practicing gratitude has been found to increase positive emotions, reduce the risk of depression, heighten relationship satisfaction, increase resilience in the face of stressful life events. For you parents in the room should listen up. Grateful teens are happier and get better grades. Grateful children are more kind to other humans. And grateful children are also more likely, uh, more likely to be good stewards of the environment that they have in front of them as well as they get older. Also, multiple studies have shown that materialism, that is the collecting of stuff, more clothes, more whatever, is correlated with higher levels of depression and anxiety and a whole range of physical ailments from back aches to drug use. So yeah, it's really good to be grateful. Gratitude is good for your body and your soul and everything else. But we've got to figure out where it comes from. If gratitude were the main point of this story, you wouldn't have Jesus' emphasis here. Notice that the story isn't about the healing that happens at the beginning. If it was a healing story, you would have had the healing happen around Jesus. Jesus is the focal point. They go away and the healing happens somewhere else on the road to the priests. But the focal point comes back when the one, that Samaritan, returns. Now remember that all ten of them would have been ostracized because of their illness. The other nine, we assume, were Jewish. And when Jesus tells them to go show themselves to the priests, they do as they're told because they know it's going to mean restoration into the community. No longer will they be the unclean or the untouchables. Their healing means that the priest is going to let them in to worship. It's going to mean they can live again with their family and their friends means they can climb up the social ladder. They're going to be restored to right relationship. That's the hope for the nine as they go running to the priest. But for the one, for the Samaritan, he doesn't have a social ladder to climb. Much like those who are prejudiced for their skin in our society, the Samaritan has little community not easily letting in to any worship space. This guy, he's just healed. There's no prospect of a social ladder or income, mobility. He will still and always be the bottom of this society, always forced to work the worst jobs and live in the worst neighborhoods. For most of his life, it was just because of his skin, and now his ancestry won't let go of its prejudice grip on his future. But this guy, this diseased immigrant, this foreigner, this is the man that turns around. That word in Greek that we so often read in English as repent. He turns around and he praises God with a loud voice. Don't know if he'd be allowed in a Presbyterian church if that ever happened to him. Jesus is happy about this, but he's appalled. Weren't there ten of you guys? But this foreigner, he comes to praise me? 
And then, then, only then do we have the healing. The healing in the story when Jesus says, Go, for your faith has made you well. That's it. Faith is the root of gratefulness. Without faith, there is no gratefulness. Now, reading a lot of the research yesterday from about happiness, some places including the Greater Good Center of Berkeley University, the number one practice of everyone who is using empirical data, every one of the social scientists that is trying to figure out how to make the world happier, every single one starts with a recommendation that sounds like this. Count your blessings. I love that phrase. Because it's not about just saying thank you because of some reciprocal arrangement. Yeah, we engaged in an act of goods being traded from me to you. This is about a deep-rooted trust placed in something bigger than yourself. An acknowledgement that it doesn't belong or is not deserved because of our actions. That we didn't earn it because we're the best capital producers. But it comes from the source of every blessing. When Jesus says, go, your faith has made you well. That made you well phrase, the word there literally means save. Your faith has saved you which has this connotation of being saved from impending destruction by supreme forces. Jesus says, your praise of me is what salvation is all about. It's not whether you say thanks to God in a singular moment because, whew, we got that good job. It's about this cycle that we learn to live into. The Presbyterian Church has recently formulated it like this. Grace and gratitude. You can put the whole Christian life into those two words, right? Grace and gratitude. God gives us grace and we respond in gratitude. Living an act of gratitude in response to grace is salvific participation. Because it's naturally going to make you do the things that we read about in the Bible, right? Doing justice, loving God, serving one another. Can you think of those people in your life who you would say are the ones with the most mature faith from your childhood, people you know now? Think about them and think about their attitudes. I assume the first thing you think of in the context of this sermon is, yeah, they've got an attitude of gratitude, but it goes deeper than just what they do or say, right? In my life, at least, the sign of a mature person who gets the Christian faith has been this person who has a sense of indebtedness to the creator of the universe. Such deep thankfulness to the Savior of their lives, this gratitude for the Spirit who keeps them going, and it's that love that then propels them to action in the world. It's people who declare that Christ is their center, and from that grounding, they move to help the helpless, to end oppression, 
to build relationships with the poor. It's kind of like what John Kennedy said when he said, As we express our gratitude, we must never forget that the highest appreciation is not to utter words, but to live by them. I don't know about you, but I want that kind of faith that's so rooted in Christ as my center that everything that spirals out from me exclaims, I am so grateful for all that I have, all that I've been given, all that is happening in my life. Can't you see the gratitude just by what I'm saying and doing? That's what I want. Whether I'm able to do that, well, that's a harder For many of us, it's going to be a worldview shift. It's a shift I struggle with. I think for many of us, we think of our lives as sort of a flat dinner table plate. Maybe even if you want the separation of foods. For some of us, we're more picky and don't like the foods that touch one another. And we kind of think of our lives like that, and we, we put these different sections in. And we think if we can just balance the different sections right, then we're going to be living a good life, right? job, my family, this activity, maybe my sports and that thing and my faith. If I just give them equal access, everything's going to balance out. But I think what we're learning in the field of faith formation is it's not so much like a flat plate. It's more sort of like a snow cone. You know, one of those funnels with the points at the bottom you have on top? Let's say we want Jesus to be at the center of our lives, and so we put that in first. But where's it going to go? The bottom. So if we put the other things in our life that goes to the top of the cone, we're naturally going to go and bite off what's at the top. And then maybe if we work our way to the bottom, we can get to that, that Jesus part but only if we have time for it. Amen? Khalil Gibran suggests, you pray in your distress and in your need. Would that you might pray also in the fullness of your joy and in your days of abundance. Here's the good news, friends. We can be people of gratitude, and we can be people of deep faith. Just last week, I went to a conference, a group of faith formation scholars thinking about what does it look like to have families at the center of faith formation. I've told you about the 4,000, 3,040 rule, right? That, that parents spend 4,000 hours of their time a year with their students. Schools spend about 3,000 hours with their students. And churches get about 40 hours a year. So it's clear to everyone, we get it, that in order for faith to be passed down to the generations, we have to figure out how to make this something that is ingrained in our families. And I think what we too often hear from the church, and I apologize and repent for my part in this, is that we get up here and we say, in order for you to grow stronger in your faith with Jesus, you've got to come to this program on Tuesday at 7 o'clock, and then you'll be saved. 
Just push aside those other things on your plate, and this is the answer. And those things are good. Those things are helpful. But the essence of it we're learning is that a faith that lasts is clearly interwoven into the daily lives of the faithful. Holy moments happen in this sanctuary for sure, but how about the minivan? How about mealtimes? How about when you're putting your kids to bed? How about when you wake up in the morning and you remember that you're alive and the gift that it is? For those who create faith that continues through the generations, we're finding that faith is interwoven into these moments. These are parents who ask their kids, where did you see God today? That act, just asking that question, is ten times more powerful than ever stepping a foot inside this worship space. Now, I want you to come to worship. I think it's a great place. I think we're able to build community. Another big piece of that faith formation is building being able for our children to build intergenerational relationships so they learn how to have faith in every stage of their life. But it's also a challenge for, for us as pastors, for all of us as families, whether we're grandparents or parents or anyone who has a child in their life, to figure out how can we celebrate the God that's in their life, not just the God who comes to the beautiful stone building in Chevy Chase Circle. There are lots of ways to do this. I mentioned one about asking your children to think about where God is in their life. You can ask them just to figure out what they're grateful for. And as they say thank you, remembering that their gratitude should be rooted in the God who gives all these things. Now, if your kids are like my kids, they may start off with just saying thank you for their toys. And thank you for the people they've seen just that day. But it builds from there. And we see by about age six and seven, that thankfulness is able to to bud and to grow and then to infiltrate other areas of their life and to affect the kind of behaviors I shared earlier from the research. There are other ways to do this too. Milestones are a big way. So one milestone you know about in the church is getting your fourth grade Bible, right? We blessed that. We noticed where God was in our life. We made vows to share that one another as families, right? So that's a very sort of church-centered milestone. But how about the milestone that some of us have faced and some of us are scared of facing called giving your child their first cell phone? I'm just shaking thinking about it. But Deborah, who I met at this conference who's the director of Milestones Ministry, came up with this milestone celebration with her grandchild when it happened. She said, well, this is a milestone. we got to celebrate this. And so she hands him the cell phone. She says, where do you see God at work in the lives of people with cell phones? It sounds sort of absurd, right? But if we really believe that God is in all and active through all, we can think about it. And her grandson said, well, 
I guess there are Bible apps. She said, well, that's great. We'll start with that. And she, she guided him thinking about other ways that she could use her faith. A text message to someone that he's grateful for who'd done a nice thing for him. Or an email to an old friend saying, I remember you and I'm grateful for you. Maybe a journaling, just noting at the end of your day, as much of the research suggests, three things, or three ways that you saw God at work in your life in that day. My friends, even the iPhone is not beyond the realm of the power of the God of our universe. On the church's end, we're trying to enter into that space. We have an app coming out and a soft launch just a few weeks for this church. We're working on an email newsletter for anyone who's interested in children faith formation. And we're always thinking about this. But you and I are compelled to build that faith that roots all our gratitude. Meister Eckhart echoes what Pastor Molly taught our kids earlier in the 14th century when he said, if the only prayer you said was thank you, that would be enough. In a world that's telling you, parents and families, that you are not good enough, you are not capable of creating faith in your children, I declare to you the good news. We are capable. We are ready. May an attitude of gratitude be a part of all we do because we find ourselves rooted in the God of the universe, the Christ who saves us, and the Holy Spirit who compels us to live out that faith in our world. Thanks be to God, and amen.